they'll be at the door afterwards, okay, if anyone's really panicking. Um, we're turning to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. Um, we're making good progress now. I understand that we're really kind of flying through this, maybe a wee bit too much, uh, too quickly. We're missing lots out, but um, I just want to get you the flavor now. I don't know if any of you saw this program um, uh, about a fortnight ago, maybe three weeks ago, Ant and Deck. Um, it was all about their ancestry and tracking their roots back through history. They ended up in Castle Ward down the road there. Um, it was a fascinating journey. It appealed to the historian in me. And of course, the fact that they were able to travel to sort of across Ireland and America and different places added to the journey, added to the production. Um, and it really brought everything to life for us as viewers and for them. But it reminded me of the story of the Smith family, a very proud family. Uh, they were really, really proud of their family line and how each kind of branch of their line had went on and been really successful and had achieved great, uh, great things. That was until they discovered a great uncle on the wife's side who had emigrated to America and uh, got caught in a couple of bad things and, well, was executed on the electric chair. How would such a proud family deal with this scandal? How would they deal with this information? How could they display their family tree for all its accuracy and include this uncle? Leave it with me, said the historian. And on the final documents and the final presentation, the Smith family, regardless of all the things that they want to see, they went straight to this great uncle. What did the historian do? How did he phrase this to make it look okay? Here's what he wrote. Uncle Luke went to America where he gained his reputation while occupying a chair of applied electronics at a great government institution. <laughs> he was attached by such strong bonds to this position that when he died it came as a real shock. We love to put a spin on things. Uh, especially whenever it suits us, whenever we want to get an angle, when we want to create a certain response, we're very good at twisting things and putting emphasis on certain things more than others. When we come to some of these verses, to be honest, it feels like these are verses that are spun quite a lot. And sometimes it can leave bad, a bad taste in people's mouths truth is so many churches try to put a spin on verses when it comes to giving, especially these verses that we'll be looking at, and they try to, I say encourage, but I mean guilt people, to provoke people, um, to squeeze people into giving more than they can afford to. And so often, when you're maybe talking to people who aren't saved, you'll maybe hear saying, oh, well, you know, I went to that church one time. All they wanted was my money. Fifteen years ago was my first trip to India. I loved it. I spent six weeks out there, part of my Bible college training. Um, if you remember a few Sunday nights ago, I had this picture up. Um, uh, I was involved in establishing sort of church plants in, in India. And throughout it all, Mrs. Jeffrey Kennedy. <laughs> Carved in stone for all of time thing is, it wasn't just the one church. There was about 20 church plants that we did, and not one of them has my name right. 
I can see myself getting to heaven and being involved in a conversation saying, oh, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I was out and I was involved in church plants out in India and God going, uh, funny, no, I don't seem to have a record of you there. It's, I've, just, I've a Mrs. Jeffrey Kennedy, but I don't have you. I think God would see the funny side in that. But while we were there for those weeks, we ran conferences in the morning and afternoon and then gospel crusades in the evening. The conferences were for local pastors, and we taught them, and we, we instructed them. Uh, I spoke about youth work and training up the generations that were to come. Um, the importance of education as, as part of, of the church, especially whenever there is little education available. The crowds were huge, and yet the organizers who we had been working with uh, before we went over, they, they, they seemed surprised at the number of people who, who were there. Why were they surprised, we asked. And it was because they'd never been to a free conference before. This real, some of them were really kind of confused, and it was only once the first day happened that they, the rest came, that the word got out that we weren't charging people to attend to hear about the Bible. They were used to having to pay to hear the Bible taught to them, explained to them. And so when they discovered it was free, more and more descended onto the conference. In fact, not only was it free, but we were giving away resources. We were giving away Bibles and, and, and by, by the bulk to give to their church members. Uh, there was motorbikes going to some of the people who needed them. Or, well, when I say motorbikes, I mean mopeds and sort of small scale things. And it really just depended on the needs. Some got cash, some got that, depending on the needs. In fact, the fact that it was free that people were able to come and, and receive rather than, than, than um, having to give. The fact that there was a gift involved rather than a transaction, it transformed the spirit of the conferences. In fact, thousands got saved in those couple of weeks. Uh, this is a picture of one of the crusades. Um, the crowds go back as far as there, and then they kind of come down there, and sort of along that way, and down here. This line of, of pastors, these are all the people who responded, night after night after night. Um, I remember coming back, going back to the hotel, disappointed because there was only 200 people got saved one night. Because we were used to six and 700 getting saved every night for four weeks in a row. The spirit of generosity that we came with opened the doors of blessing in the conferences and the training of Christian workers, and ultimately, the spirit that we then had together as Christians, I believe, led to the saving of souls in the Crusades. I am absolutely convinced of that. And Second Corinthians 9 is going to be scriptural validation of that, the blessings that come with generosity. Now, Paul is going to talk about the heart of generosity of a believer again. This is just a in this chapter, let me repeat myself. I, I just need to be as clear as we can. It is not about how much you give. It is about the willingness to give. What I'm making an appeal for this morning is not cash, but your heart. Let me just give you a couple of texts before we get into Second Corinthians 9 that link heart and money. Ecclesiastes 5, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. 
Matthew 6, Jesus is speaking, no one can serve two masters. He will hate the one, love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Really simple verse, really simple text, but it's kind of just breaking down this idea that at some point you're going to have to choose which one is more important. Which one is more important? It's just making, making it clear. And then in Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have for he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. Three of what could have been dozens and dozens and dozens of verses that link the soul to how we feel about money. So, so much so that I would say deep spiritual growth and conformity into the likeness of Christ is impossible until you deal with the issue of money and how you relate to it. 2 Corinthians 9. It is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying about Achaia, that area around Corinth, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them, but I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we'll be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. This is Paul's third missionary journey. So on top of the normal responsibilities of going around the churches, building up and preaching the gospel, he's taking on this additional task of uh, taking on uh, taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem that's suffering for all the reasons that we talked about last Sunday. One of the many reasons Paul is personally motivated is obviously, of course, uh, he feels guilty about his persecution against the early Christians in Jerusalem back in the day before he got saved, but also he wants to promote unity in an ethnically diverse church. There's people from Jewish backgrounds, Roman backgrounds, African backgrounds, Greek backgrounds, and so while they all worship the same God, they trust in the same gospel, people are struggling to play nice because of the cultural differences. So in these verses, Paul's reminding them, look, a year has passed. You made a commitment. You told Titus that, that you were willing to give. You're among one of the first churches to actually sign up to this. So there's a wee gentle nudge here. Guys, it's one thing to say you're committed. It's time to follow through now on your promises. It's like a golf swing. You know, it's one thing to keep your eye on the ball and address the ball. You know that kind of wee wiggle that they do? Apparently it's important. But anyone who teaches golf or plays golf to any degree will say the most important thing that you can do is as you swing your golf club, swing through the ball and fall through as far as you can. You have to fall through. It's the same in tennis, same in snooker, same in football. When you strike the ball, you have to follow through. It's the proper technique. And Paul says, look, you made a commitment, follow through properly. Why? Because this gift is, according to the language in verse 1, a ministry. It's a ministry. Sometimes people like to elevate the word ministry to the upper echelons that it's only reserved for reverends and full-time workers. Well, they've got ministry. I, I don't have a ministry. That's not true. Paul says, actually, the act of generosity is a ministry, and it's a really valuable ministry. It's important. 
So they've had a year, and he suggests it would be a wee bit embarrassing if they showed up and they hadn't had anything organized. Now, why did they get a year, though? Why give them so long? Read 1 Corinthians, and you'll have the answer. You'll see that the Corinthian church had issues to work through. They were immature. They were divided. They, were, um, they failed to grasp basic doctrine. They, stri- they struggled to speak. They struggled to, to get settled on, on uh, the use of spiritual gifts. They were getting drunk at communion. They were feasting while others had nothing to eat. They were selfish. They, they were um, self-centered, and all this would have impacted how they thought about giving a gift to people who they didn't know in Jerusalem. So Paul, give them a year. I want you to be aware that Paul is very cautious here. He's walking a real tightrope. On one hand, he's saying, look, it's voluntary. It's completely up to you how much you give. But at the same time, he's saying, but it looks really bad if you don't give anything. So he's finding this balance of saying, look, it's up to you. But I want you to feel a wee bit here that there's something that's important. He could have, you know, Paul was a lawyer, right? That was his background. He could have went all lawyer on them and said, look, you made a verbal contract. If you don't pay up, you guys are in breach of contract. But he doesn't do that. We, spoke, we spent most of last week talking about this. Giving can't be forced. It can't be pressurized. That's not how God seeks to work. And as I said, with those pastors in India, the spirit in which we give allows God to move more powerfully than if we force people to give money. Because the point's this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I love verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I love how there's just no scope for failure. That if you give generously, listen, God's going to meet whatever need comes up. I love that. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. <coughs> so Paul uses this image of a farmer, and he uses the physics and the um, the, the illustration of a farmer. The more you put into the ground, the more seeds you sow, the more you harvest. That's, that's the law of physics. Oh, that's just how farming works. That applies to the physical world. And Paul says, look, it also applies to the spiritual world here. Now, do you see how these verses get twisted? You hear all those American pastors put a seed in the ground, put a seed of faith, and you know, give the church $100 and you can get 1000 back. You see how this starts to get twisted? I don't understand fully this law. I'd feel fraudulent if I stood up here and said, I got this sussed out. I don't. Okay, I don't have this sussed out. I can't figure it out exactly. There is a relationship clearly in Scripture between the willingness to give and the blessings that we receive. I can't give you, though, any specifics. I can't say if you give X, you will definitely get Y. I cannot say that there's a scientific formula. I cannot say that there's a guarantee of what that return will be. All I can say is that Scripture says there will be a return. Here's what I do know, though. Here's what I can say confidently. I don't understand all the physical laws of physics. 
but I still act on the principles, all right? I, for example, I don't understand electricity. That sounds maybe really, sounds really silly, but I don't understand the electricity. I don't. Is it waves or is it particles? Does it travel in the wire or around the wire? I understand very little about it as an as energy source, but I'm prepared to trust that as a power source. All right, if you come past my house later on this evening, you're not going to find me standing in the dark living room, kind of just staring at the lights, saying, well, I'm not going to use it until I figure it all out. No, that's not how it's going to be. Uh, rather, I, I, I trust it, I, I know it works, and so I, I, I flip the switch. In the same way, I don't understand this spiritual law completely. I don't have all the ins and outs worked out. But I am going to live it out. I'm going to trust it. I'm not going to stand in spiritual darkness and miss out. I may not grasp all the dynamics, but I trust the power that is in it. Because God's word has said, this is how it works. Jesus said in Luke 6, give and it will be given to you. For with the measure you use it, will be measured back to you. It's clear cut. Proverbs 11, verse 24 says, One gives freely, yet grows richer. Another withholds what he should give and suffers want. That feels counterintuitive to us, doesn't it? Because giving is subtraction. If I give you something, then I've got less. But the Bible says, no, no, giving isn't subtraction. Giving is addition. Effectively, I'll paraphrase it. If you're stingy, you will miss out on what God could do with it. If you're generous, you'll be part of what God can do. Simple as that. Giving it away is not the same as throwing it away. We give not so that we get, but we give so that others can get. And it's an expression of love. It's an expression of fellowship. And it's an expression of worship. And it's a creating an environment where God is praised and God is glorified and God is trusted. And therefore, God is reflected in his people and he is made much of. And it is good. This is not prosperity gospel where you sow 10 pounds and you're going to get back 20 or 200 or whatever. It's not like for like that. That's where the farming metaphor breaks down slightly here in verses 7 and 8. God's not the stock exchange, you know, where he's good investment for your capital. That's, that's not what this is happening. Motivation is the difference here. A, a farmer could be in a foul form, hate every moment of his job, hate everything that he's doing, and resent everything about his job. But if he still sows the seed, he's still going to get a harvest because his heart isn't going to change what happens to the seed. But in spiritual terms, it does matter. Why you do something is the crucial factor. Remember what God said to Samuel, choosing the anointing king, what said to the boys and girls, you're looking at the outside. I look at the inside. Let me underline something again. It's not about how much you give, but how you give. Verse 7 highlights some ways that people can give. You can give reluctantly. And that's really not something that you want to do, but you feel you have to. Uh, maybe you've heard preachers say, you've got to give till it hurts. I'm sorry, that's just not biblical. That's not biblical. It should never hurt. It should be our delight. It should bring joy. Now, I did say last week that giving should cost. 
but there's a difference between a cost and hurting. Paul here says many times, give what you can, give what you are able to. He never sets a percentage. He never sets an amount. So cost is different to hurting. It's one thing to say, okay, from now on, I'm going to increase the Tesco spend by 10 pounds so that one night a week I can bring someone around for dinner or I can, I can, I can cook a, up a plate and take it to someone in the, in the church who needs it more than us. That's a cost because it's going to be 40 pound a month or 50 pound a month. It's going to be 500 pound a, a, a year. It's a cost. But it's being done willingly, gladly. It's different to giving so that you put yourself in debt or you can't sleep at night because it hurts. That's not what God has asked. Now, we could maybe talk about how we spend our money and how it all breaks down, but that's between you and God. But if it's really going to irk you, if it's really going to annoy you, if you're really going to have to moan and complain and resent the fact that you would be asked to pay for anything, just keep it. Honestly, just keep it. She, Alvin, the treasure, having an aneurysm there in the balcony. It shouldn't hurt. And it shouldn't come if you're going to moan and complain about it and look for sympathy. You imagine getting to heaven saying, God, you know, remember whenever I put that whole 10 pound note, I didn't even use coins, I used like paper money and I put it in, in the box at the back. Where, where, where's my reward for that? And God says, uh, well, you got your reward. Remember all that whining and groaning and sympathy that you got from people? Remember all that praise that you got in church because you made such a big deal of it at the time? Well, that's eroded any credit that you have up here. Read the first couple of verses in Matthew 6. Jesus says exactly that. Let me give you a different example. Imagine I give you a Christmas present, right? I, I'm not allowed at the crafting class, but imagine I, I knit you a lovely jumper and I'm going to give it to you for Christmas. I really don't want to give it to you because they, they've taught me the, 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 the craft, the knitting so well, I want to keep it for myself. And so I say to you, look, I don't really want to give you this present, but I feel like it's a duty to give you this present. And I suppose I might feel good about myself down the line about giving you this present. So here you go. Be thankful. You might just say, Jeff, you know what? I think you can just keep it. I think you want this more than I want this. Oh, really? Oh, thanks, thanks, thanks. I really wanted it for myself anyway. You, you sort of think, that wasn't how I wanted that to go. Paul says God's attitude is the same. If you can't give with the right heart, don't bother giving. But you'll reap according to how you sow. The other way of giving is out of necessity. Again, compulsion, this idea that the church is really laid on thick. Um, it's pressured. There's the power of hype, you know, the sort of thing, you know. Give 25 pounds right now or puppies in Africa die of leukemia or something, you know. And it's kind of like, <gasps> I have to give right now. Or, or, or you know, there's no real puppies in Africa. All right, don't, don't worry, it's not us. But that's what happens. And churches fall into it. They use guilt uh, to pressure you into giving. Children in need do it. Says comic relief does it. Churches do it. 
people who have meetings um, up and down the country, they like to lay it on thick and it wears really thin. I've always felt that if God is in it, it won't fold. If God's not in it, it ought to fold. I'm trusting God for the resources. God will stir the hearts of his people to meet the needs. So how do you give the right way? The right way is willingly. Verse 7, as you have purposed in your heart. Nowhere here does Paul mention numbers, amounts, totals. If God's given you an amount to give, then give that. Be obedient to that. Give faithfully to that. Give what you can give joyfully. Give what you can give cheerfully. Give as an act of worship. In the same way that you can sing all the songs, and not everyone is necessarily worshiping God because our hearts aren't in it. We're just going through the motions. In the same way, we can be giving on a regular basis, but it's not worship. It depends how we give. And there's a call through Scripture, let everything be done to praise God, to glorify God, to worship Him. Which means I've got zero biblical authority to tell you how you ought to give. That is between you and God. Uh, as a church leadership, we're working on a couple of things. And, uh, you know, down the line, we, we w- are going to be doing things that are going to require investment. We want to move the church forward. We want to make sure that we're ready for growth. We're ready for, for, for people getting saved. And we want to be able to be as good as we can be to glorify God. And we'll tell the members about it in due course. But when it's the right time, listen, church. It will be to inform you, to pray. It will be about accountability, transparency, stewardship. It will not be about squeezing money. I make it my business to make the finance of the church none of my business. I know the total figure that comes in. I know the total figure that comes out. I do not know the makeup of any of it. No specifics. Because here's the truth about the Christian church in 2019. God does not own 10% of what we have. God owns 100% of what we have. You can test me on this, all right? Take your, put your kid in the car after church, drive to Tesco's and buy him a new PlayStation or a drone or something, okay? And all of a sudden, also all, all the sorry, kids are kind of going, huh? I love this church now. We need to come here more often. M&M's and a PlayStation? Yeah. Go to Tesco's or wherever you want to go that will be open. Let them carry the PlayStation up to the till. You pay for the PlayStation. Then on the way home, let him hold it in his lap in the car on the way home. Let him hold it. Let him dream. Let him carry it. And then you go back to your house that you own, um, that you allow your children to live in. Um, hook up the PlayStation that you just bought for them into the TV that you own in your living room, set up, let them play. Now you go to the other room, eat a sandwich, a cup of coffee, whatever it is that you want to do. Come back and say, can daddy have a turn? What's the answer going to be? <laughs> no, it's mine. It's my turn. It's mine. I just got it. Let me have my turn. <laughs> Say, I know it's yours. I paid for it like 30 minutes ago in the shop. What's mine? I'm playing it. The reaction from most parents instinctively will be, uh, nothing is yours. (laughs) You own nothing. In fact, give me your clothes that I paid for. They're mine. Get out of my house. You want to have lunch? 
get a job, you know. Instinctively, you want to do that. There's a couple of people kind of elbowing. Here's the thing. As parents, we want to teach our children graciousness. We want to teach them generosity. Right from the early stage, we want to be able to teach them, look, share your things with others. Share your toys. Invite others in to play. It's, it's right from play school. Share. Let others join in. Because we want them to know, understand the difference that the things that they have is not because they are wonderful and have earned it. They've been given as an expression of our love to them. It's a provision, an expression of love. And yet what that child does time and time again, especially coming up to Christmas, you'll see it. The same thing is what we do to the Lord when we look at our bank balance and say, well, it's mine. I just got it. (laughs) There was none there last week and now there's some there. I just got it. Let me have it. It's mine. It's my turn. And God will say, no, I got that for you. It's an expression of my love. I have provided for you. I've provided for your family once again. I provided it to you for a reason. Say, well, I don't care what the reason is. It's mine. And in the same way, our children can drive us crazy. It's the same way we can drive God crazy. He has provided. How dare we be selfish and hoard it and refuse to share. And in the same way, a parent will delight when he sees his children freely, willingly sharing their toys, showing kindness, opening up the friendship circle. So too God delights when his children do those things with a spirit of willingness and generosity. Can I just take a wee bit of time as we close to put a bad rumor to bed? This, this idea that the Old Testament talks about tithing, but the New Testament doesn't, that's not true. Okay, people will go to Genesis 14, Abraham and Abimelech. God is not involved in, in setting any parameters there. That tenth was something that Abraham did as a one-off gesture. Here is the first time that God speaks about giving in the Bible. It's in Exodus. It says, every man whose heart moves him, you will receive a contribution. Willingness. A spirit of generosity. God, even at the start, says, look, give from the heart. Go forward 10 chapters. Chapter 35. All the congregation of the people departed from the presence of Moses and they came. Everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent and meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and almost all sorts of gold objects. Every man dedicating an offering to the gold of gold to the Lord. They gave out of willingness. But here's the one that blew my mind. The next chapter, chapter 36. Moses called Bezael and Holiab, and every craftsman whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come and do the work. So again, they're building up the tabernacle. Listen, nobody's going to make you come and work in the tabernacle. It's a place of worship. So only come if your heart's right. All the skilled workers, yeah, we're not, we're not conscripting you. We're looking for people who are genuine and want to come and do this. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work in the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task under the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing. Okay, so from every department. 
and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing. Wow. Restrained from bringing. Okay. It wasn't just a wee wooden hut they were putting up. The tabernacle would have cost millions with all the, the gold and the silver and the ornate furniture that went into the holy place. But they had to be restrained from bringing. They were willing, so keen that Moses had to tell them to stop. And this is the heart that God is after. Remember the pastors in India that I mentioned? That they said to us, how can you get anything done when you keep being so generous? easy. It's how we do things here and how we will do things here. We will do it with willing hearts. We will work with what the Lord provides, giving as an act of worship. So as you worship the Lord here, God will support the work. And while there is a serious desire to worship God in this church, I see no reasons not to believe that the needs will be met. It's like the boy who came to Jesus with his loaves and fish. He gave willingly when it was handed to the Lord. It met the needs of thousands. Let's go on. Let's just finish the last bit. Uh, verse 9 is a quote from Psalm 1 and then into verse 10. Um, he who supplied seed to the sower uh, and bread for food. In other words, okay, so back to the image of the farmer. But now we learn, okay, yeah, okay, you're the farmer. Great. But guess who gave you the seed to sow with? So if you want to sow bountifully or want to sow not, just remember who gave you the seed in the first place. He'll supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Again, no information about uh, ratios or how much generosity will lead to how much blessing. We don't know other than the promise of the power of what will happen there. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. It's an act of worship. There's more to church than just paying the bills. It's more than just hitting targets. It's about the Spirit of God being magnified and glorified. And that means even in how we give, it's important. So by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I love how Paul just bursts in the praise. He gets distracted and he just starts praising God for what? For Christ, for that gift of Christ. Giving is a unique topic in the Bible. It it, um, perhaps makes people uncomfortable. It certainly makes uh, this preacher anyway uncomfortable. But it's also the only time and only subject in the Bible that God says, test me on this. We're told in Scripture, do not test the Lord your God. But when we go to Malachi 3, Verses 8 through to 10. Here's the Kennedy International Translation. Don't be stingy. Don't rob God. Stop trying to cheat the system. Test me in this, and I'll open up the storehouses of heaven in abundance for you. Church, here's the plea from Scripture. 
to your heart, for your heart this morning. Be generous with what you've been given. You can't give more than what you can give. But check your motivations and with all that you have, worship Christ. Worship Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,